This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The World Market Watch is brought to you by CMB Preferred. BFM 89.9706, Wednesday, the 18th of January, and you're listening to The Morning Run with Philip C. Chong Jensen and I'm Wong Shaoning. Both these gentlemen obviously miss the memo today because we are celebrating Chinese New Year on BFM and we were told to wear bright, festive clothing and these two guys, one turned up in dark blue and the other one came in a green checkered shirt. My sneakers are white colour, okay? Uh, still not festive enough, okay? So clearly... Only I paid attention. But never mind, I digress. In about 30 minutes, we're speaking to Daniel Hines of ANZ, a bank on commodities. But let's recap how global markets closed yesterday. US markets were mixed. The Dow was down 1.1% and that was led by the poorer showing for Goldman's results. The S&P 500, it was down by 0.2%. NASDAQ, it was up by 0.1%. And in Asian markets, the Nikkei was up by 1.2%. Hang Seng down by 0.8%. The Shanghai Composite, it was down by 0.1%. Straits Times Index, it was down by 0.1%. FBM KLCI up by 0.4%. A tad shy of 1,500 still. Yeah, but a very mixed day, right, across the region. And, um, but for more on where international markets are heading and the economies that we should pay attention to, we have on the line with us Carlos Casanova, Senior Economist at UBP. Good morning, Carlos. Now, I think we should focus on China. It released a slew of economic data. We saw GDP, retail sales, industrial production, new loans and unemployment. So help us make sense of all these macro data points. What does it mean for China's economy? Good morning. So definitely all eyes are on China this week. Um, we saw a deceleration in the economy in the fourth quarter, as expected, especially in December. Um, and a lot of that was linked to the fact that there was a very large outbreak of COVID-19 um, because of the very sudden policy U-turn around mid-December. Uh, so as expected, we did see a deceleration in activity indicators, um, and that was led um, by manufacturing. Um, with there being a slight inflection point uh, in terms of retail sales. So they, these were still negative. We are still coming from a very low point in terms of growth, um, but they were less negative than expected. And unemployment um, was a little bit lower than it was in November. So it was a mixed bag. It does show that there was some resilience in the economy. For economists like myself, it means that the risks of there being a big uh, decline in activity in the first quarter due to COVID are lower. So for economists like myself, it was a positive uh, message. Um, and in fact, I believe the market will probably look to revise upwards the GDP forecast for China in 2022. But markets didn't like it as much um, for a number of reasons, and we can cover them as well. So we did see a little bit of mixed performance um, in the Hang Seng uh, with less uh, down, you know, Hang Seng being down quite a fair bit and, and a little bit less pressure on the onshore equity side. Um, but definitely investors being right. a little bit more cautious or maybe uh, yeah, taking it in uh, a, a little bit differently than us economists. So how will the PBOC monetary policy respond to these data? So... Um, I think there are two things. Um, on the one hand, um, we are seeing um, that the economy is still in a weak position entering the first quarter. So we do think that uh, PBOC um, should think about um, delivering that final round of stimulus. And we think that it could be as soon as this week, um, but it could also be um, within the first quarter of 2023. Um, however, 
the fact that the economy um, is on the path to recover because of that stronger performance in consumption, which, you know, retail sales were negative, but we saw that despite rising cases, people, there was pent-up demand and people um, were still buying things, suggests that um, in 2022, we might have stronger growth performance. And if that's the case, um, it could exert inflationary pressures and reduce some of the policy space for QBOC to act. But we don't think that this is going to be uh, a, a narrative that materializes in the first half of the year. So potentially in the second half, uh, but for the time being, uh, the economy remains under pressure, so PBOC uh, should deliver that final round of stimulus. And Carlos, in December of last year, the Bank of Japan surprised markets by widening the allowance corridor for the 10-year Japan government bond yield target. Will the BOJ end its yield curve control policy when it concludes its two-day monetary policy meeting this week? So we, we we don't think that that will happen this week, but absolutely um, that Chinese reopening and changes to BOJ policy are the two main stories uh, to watch out for 2023, at least in the first half. Um, so what we think might happen is they will announce some technical fixes. Uh, of course, the Japanese government yield has been um, fluctuating around 0.5. In fact, the last three days it's gone slightly above 0.5%. So they need to do something to alleviate the pressures. Um, but remember, Bank of Japan is very slow. Um, they're very experimental, but they're very incremental central bank as well. And so they are likely going to wait until they have strong evidence that um, core inflation will be higher in a sustainable manner. And that will only come after the Shunto wage offensive, which is um, the spring wage negotiation that takes place every time uh, right around Chinese New Year. Um, and uh, in case we see a stronger uh, increase in wages in Japan, um, so current forecasts are around 5%, which for a market like Japan, which has had zero inflation and zero wage growth for the last uh, 20 years, is quite unprecedented. So if we have very, very fast wage growth in Japan, that might be the cue that the BBOJ is waiting um, to say, OK, we are going to see higher core inflation. That means we've successfully beat the deflation monster over the past two decades, and it is time for Bank of Japan to pivot. So that could happen this year, but we do think that it's going to only happen after we see that increase in wages um, around March, uh, paving the way also for Governor Kuroda to step down from his role. Um, so in our opinion, it won't happen uh, this week, uh, but we might see some technical fixes this week. And of course, the market is ready for carnage and there's going to be volatility on the Japanese government bond and JPY front regardless. Um, so it is something that investors should keep a close eye on in any case. So then very quickly, uh, Carlos, what's your outlook for the yen? It's currently 128 against the US dollar. The peak was 150 sometime in October. That's a very sharp decline. Yes, well, the, the JPY was very oversold last year um, as a result of the US dollar rally. And we are seeing to see that rally fickle and in, in fact start to reverse with almost, uh, as we discussed last time, all currencies in Asia um, stronger against the US dollar. Um, that so far has been led by the JPY. Um, we think that um, there is uh, some room for JPY to move towards one, uh, 125, absolutely. Um, for the year as a whole, if we see a policy inflection and we see an improvement in Japan's uh, balance of payments, then we could see Japanese uh, yen heading towards 120. Uh, but, you know, there's uh, too many ifs in, in that assumption. So I would go with 125 for the time being. 
All right, thank you very much for your time. That was Carlos Casanova, Senior Economist at UBP, ending his conversation on his outlook for Japan's monetary policy and also the yen forecast 125 against the US dollar this morning, 128 at the moment. The peak was 150 in October. Wow, it's a lot of volatility for a currency in a short space of time. Uh, what is volatile has been the earnings of the banks in the US. So we have to pay attention to this, right? Very important bellwethers of the US economy. I think we should start with uh, the grandfather of them all, Goldman Sachs. That's right. The financial fortunes of both of them have had very mixed fortunes. We talk about Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Now, Goldman Sachs suffered, you know, I think fell below expectations. I think they missed earnings by a I think the largest earnings gap by a decade, I think. Earnings per share was at $3.32 versus the expected $5.48. Quarterly profits plunged 66% from a year earlier to $1.33 billion. Its largest EPS miss since October 2011, more than a decade. Wow. And on the other hand, if you look at Morgan Stanley's numbers, the fourth quarter revenue narrowly beat analyst expectations. And this is largely from its wealth management unit, which helped to partly offset the declines. But its net income fell to $2.11 billion from $3.59 billion a year ago, while its earnings per share was at $2.01, which actually beat estimates of $1.19. So, so it's a tale of two halves, isn't it? It's a, tale of, it's a tale of two halves, but there are some consistencies with the only aberration being that at least Morgan Stanley had the wealth management business prop it up. Yeah, so you see the investment banking fees drop for both. Mm. You see both provisioning for credit loss with the anticipation that, you know, consumer credit is going to weaken substantially. And of course, both have to, to you know, kind of dole out higher compensation due to the retrenchments that have been taking place in Wall Street. But I suspect Goldman has to pay a much higher compensation. Well, they are known to pay their investment bankers a lot more, right? So hence the higher compensation. But what does this tell you about the future, uh, about you know what's going to happen to the US economy in the coming months? It probably gives you a sense that capital uh, raising activity is going to be sluggish. There'll probably be much less IPOs if you think that there's going to be a recession. And these cutting, aggressive cutting of staff is also indicative of all that. Mm. But at the same time, wealth management business continues to be robust. Which means that, you know, if you're like the equivalent of in America, the T20, you're still probably doing okay. You know, you still want, you still have money to plow into, you know, be it uh, unit trust, into markets. So I think that's pretty steady, Eddie. But it's the investment business that I think that people have question marks over. Yeah, so I think the question is, when you talk about balance sheets, who has the stronger balance sheets, right? Corporate balance sheets under a lot more pressure, but within, you know, consumer balance sheets, it will be a very split mixed peach picture, right? Yeah. The T20 a bit more robust, but the M40, B40 struggling somewhat. Well, Goldman, if you look at the consensus, right, 19 buys, 9 holds, 1 sell. Consensus target price for this stock, 399 US dollars. Last done price during regular market hours was 349 US dollars. It was actually down 24 US dollars. So a bit of a shock there, actually, I think. But uh, does this mean that David Solomon gets to keep his job or is he going to have to... Rely on being a full-time DJ? Yeah, maybe. And then uh, what's that famous... Uh, uh, music festival he went to play at Coachella. Maybe he might be there this year permanently instead of running Goldman Sachs. Meanwhile, if we look at uh, Morgan Stanley in terms of the analyst recommendations, 17 buys, 11 whole, one sell consensus target price for this stock, $96.64. The stock is actually above consensus target price. It closed up $5.42 to $97.80. 
eight cents. Uh, but uh, up next, we'll be covering the top stories in the newspapers and portals this morning. Stay tuned for that. BFM eighty nine point nine. The World Market Watch is brought to you by CMB Preferred. Moving forward with you. Visit cmbpreferred.com.my for their preferential services beyond banking. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.